0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello everyone and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband Steve Siegel is the producer of the podcast. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating, not because we think we're cool but because when you do that, Google brings us up when people are looking for podcasts about addiction. And we like to think that we give people a message of hope and that we tell stories that might resonate with them and give them some direction. Also, please go to our YouTube channel and subscribe, give our videos a thumbs up and also ring the bell so that you're notified when we do a new video. Today's episode is episode number 311. Next week, our episode number 312 will be the end of our sixth year of bringing you messages of hope about the subject of addiction. So we're kind of excited to reach that milestone. But today we have an interview with a gentleman named Fred Shaw. Now, Reverend Fred Shaw is the public, is director of public affairs and spokesperson for the Citizens Commission on Human Rights International, also known as CCHR. It is a more than 50 year mental health industry watchdog. He's also the executive director of the NAACP Inglewood South Bay branch in California with a long history of working for the NAACP. He's a native of Compton. He's worked in Compton for most of his life, and he is a fierce advocate for children and adults in both civic and human rights. He has advocated and stressed the importance of education and the reduction of poverty and drug addiction. His late mother, Marcin Shaw, was a Sergeant in the Women's Army Corps in 1950. And for 18 years, she was senior deputy to Los Angeles County Supervisors, Kenneth Hahn and Yvonne Braithwaite Burke. So, Mr. Shaw, Reverend Shaw is all about kids. He's all about education and he's all about ensuring a future for these kids. And that includes making sure that they don't turn to drugs and they're not prescribed drugs. So without further ado, let's talk to Reverend Fred Shaw. Reverend Fred Shaw, thank you so much for being willing to be on our podcast today. You bring a breadth of experience not so much you know personal addiction because we just talked about that you yourself did not have a drug problem but you definitely have been dealing with helping people with all sorts of problems and it's just a whole different viewpoint so thank you for talking to us today
1: okay and then i want to acknowledge that if uh you want to record this or whatever it is perfectly fine with me and so uh And then we'll go on. So now the first question was what again? Well, Um, just um, tell us
0: where you grew up. Where did you grow up, Reverend Shaw? And and what did you see in terms of addiction?
1: Well, uh, I grew up in the city of uh, Los Angeles, Willowbrook and Compton. Willowbrook is is a Los Angeles County strip that is next to the city of Compton and next to the city of Watts. And so I grew up in the inner city, where all of the temptations and the, the gang violence and the drug use and things like that were being done. I myself never really participated in any large degree. I mean, I was a street kid. You experiment, but I was never into the cocaine or heroin. I actually came from a family with high expectations. My, my uh, father and mother created the first. African-American Black Pop Warner uh, football teams so that the kids would have something to do. My mother was uh, worked for one of the super- most powerful supervisors in L.A. County. She also became a councilwoman in the city of Compton. My father was a businessman, so I grew up with a different experience. Even though I grew up in it, I was not of it. Right. So now when it comes to toughness and being able to stand up for yourself and being bullied, I was not one of those that would take that. So (laughs) I took sports, I took boxing and things like that. So I could walk my own path as a basketball player and things like that.
0: I don't know if you know, but I've always teased you, Reverend Shaw, because you are you are a large man. And I always used to say that I wouldn't want to run into you in a dark alley because you look so fierce. And I know you're not. I know you are a very kind gentleman, but you have that fierce look. And I can I can see how you didn't take anything from anybody.
1: Well, I was good by choice. I I I wasn't a weakling, and let me tell you this: it, I grew up where, you know, fierce look wasn't enough. And at the time, I was a really thin guy, but that's why I took the martial arts and stuff. But I was so connected in the streets, I didn't really have to worry, worry about it anyway. I knew most of the Crip leaders and the Blood leaders and the and all of those types of guys of the different gangs all over. So I was. Um, very lucky because a lot of those guys played in the Pop Warner football programs that my mother created and our different associations. I didn't have a lot of people try me, but if they did, then they we we all learned a lesson from it.
0: <laughs> I understand. And I I assume that in the area where you grew up, there was addiction in that area. So you likely were aware of it and saw it.
1: Well, yeah, you you would run into people who had heroin addiction, you would run into people who uh what we used to call red devils and stuff like that. People were addicted to those things. Uh I didn't know of a lot of cocaine. My flow even though I came across them was not of that of drug addicts and stuff. My flow was more into the athleticism and things like that, and trying to accomplish things. But you do run into it. You do see it, especially, I don't know if you remember or know this, especially when I went into law enforcement. Uh And then I became a Los Angeles County Sheriff Deputy, and I did that for 13 years. And then that was a totally different experience than I grew up with. Because now, every time you get a call, it's somebody's problem. Somebody's, drug addiction, somebody's, you know, whatever the crime may be. So then you learn. You have a whole different experience. And thank God I did grow up into the street because it allowed me to be able to handle things that a lot of people had difficulty doing.
0: And, and I think that's huge because I think, for example, if I were a uh, Los Angeles County sheriff's deputy, the last thing people would want to hear from me is don't do drugs, get off of drugs, because... Obviously, I have no idea what they go through and I have no idea what their lives are like. So I think the fact that you grew up there and then you're a sheriff's deputy, that had to have been, you know, that had to have helped you have some rapport with a lot of the people you had to deal with.
1: Well, I was so connected in the streets that uh, I didn't have the problems that a lot of sheriff deputies had. People knew me. They knew my personality. They knew what kind of guy I was. I didn't try to, you know, perpetuate that I was something that I wasn't. I was just being me. Most of them, well, I could fight. Most of them knew the type of things I was into. So nobody really tried to try me from the streets like that because, in fact, even when I worked the jails, some of the gang leaders protected me, made sure uh-huh. nobody knew They're not mess. they knew not to mess with me. So, you know, and um, I wouldn't care either way. But, you know, it was nice to know that people thought enough of you that they would not let you get caught up. I had drug dealers when I made a joke one time. I made a joke about I said, man, this this crack cocaine got everybody so messed up. I ought to try it. And one of the uh, dope dealers said, no, Shaw, you cannot try it. Uh. You need to it for the people,
0: uh. you know. So,
1: like So, I, you know, I, I, and I didn't even know that guy. <laughs> but he knew a Yeah. So that was was important.
0: Wow. That's a great story. Now when I met you Reverend Shaw, you were mm-hmm. focused on literacy and you were working mm-hmm. with kids to teach them how to read because I know that you and others of your peers had realized that the kids really needed to learn how to read. But how did you then, I know that now or more recently, you've been focused a lot on the on the drugging of kids. How did how did all of that come about? How did that how did you segue from literacy into what you do now with the Citizens Commission on Human Rights? How did that all come about?
1: It actually came about by accident. Before I was into the literacy thing, uh, my youngest son was diagnosed with dyslexia. Okay. And so, they told me that it was incurable. A friend of mine recommended the program that I put him in and they had him do his letters in clay and his numbers in clay. And, and he came home one time and he told me, he said, dad, I don't wanna do it no more, it's too hard. And I just told him, I hugged him and I said, just do it for me. And one day he comes home and he said, dad, I don't think I have it anymore. You know, I know my numbers, I know my letters. And so I called the school. And told him that I'd had him under a private therapist and um, that uh, I wanted him retested and they couldn't tell that he ever had it.
0: Wow.
1: And I, as a cop, as a person that grew up in the inner city, as a father, um, you know, how many kids are being diagnosed with something because they don't know how to cure it? Right. Not that it can't be cured. And, and and they had made a vital mistake that led to that because they told me they wanted him to be able to see a therapist. And I said, for what reason? He said, they said to help him with his self-esteem. I said, I'm his father. That's my job. And so then that's what led to the, to getting them to the program that helped him. And when they, when they couldn't tell that he ever had it, I knew something was up. Yeah. And so then, the same friend introduced me to the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. And then I recently, in the last five to seven years, became a staff member, but I volunteered for over twenty five years just wow. to help yeah and, and and I
0: can see that because kids get diagnosed with something like dyslexia, which, is a learning problem. It's not a mental problem. It's a learning and a comprehension problem from my understanding. But if you label them with a mental disorder, then the solution becomes medication.
1: Well, the thing was, was that my my ex-wife was a a dental assistant. Um, I was a sheriff deputy, so we could afford a house. She was a Spanish house or Mexican housekeeper, and he had actually got the two languages mixed up. Oh. And that's what happened, he, his twin sister could interpret everything he said, nobody else could un, understand it. <laughs> and so, so as he started really learning to read and separate the languages, there was things that he had mixed up. And so once they started working with him, then he was able to separate those things, and then he was like a normal kid.
0: Right, right. But he could have gone down the road of of being diagnosed with some kind of mental disorder, and then you would have ended up putting him on meds because you don't know any difference.
1: Well, that was the road they were trying to take when they said he needed a therapist or something. Then the next step is, oh, you need these medications because the therapist, unfortunately— uh, do not handle the problems that that people that they're supposed to be treating have.
0: Right. So after this happened with your son, what did you start finding out about kids um, on a broader scale being diagnosed with this, that, or the other thing?
1: Well, one of the things that was very interesting, when I left the sheriff's department, it was to open my own business. I had seen all of the apprehension side but I wanted to get into the prevention side of of law enforcement. So we, me and my sister, we teamed up and we opened up group homes for boys. These were uh, probation children. They were in 24 hour facilities, uh, so they lived there. But all of these kids were coming in with uh, these diagnoses and stuff, but we were able to teach them how to read. Mm. And we would not, we actually forfeited $64,000 a month because we would not put the kids on psychiatric drugs because having been connected with CCHR, I knew what these drugs did. And as a minister, I could not, as a Christian minister, I could not put the kids on drugs.
0: So $64,000 a month, you would have been paid to put these kids on drugs.
1: And I wanted my BMW just like everybody else. And I wanted my house on the hill just like but. Spiritually, I could not do that knowing what these drugs would do to these kids. And because of that, we had a very interesting history. We had guys that became supervisors and uh, electricians, NFL football players. All these types of kids came out of our group home. And if I can tell you one quick story, yeah, we had had one kid, he was about 6'2". He had a menacing scowl. He was about 16 or so, and people were afraid of him. They sent him to us because we had the reputation of handling the worst kids.
0: You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or... You can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today. And say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. The service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby.
1: Well, they wanted him to go to a continuation school and they wanted him to um, be put on drugs. So when I walk in the door, I got this information, and if it wasn't me, I don't know what happened to that kid because I walked in, he looks at me and he sees I'm 6'6", six, six, maybe at that time, about 2.30, 2.40. And he says, you want a box? And I looked at him and I said, well, the system will not let you box me, but what I will do is take you out on a basketball court and see how good you are. And so I took him out there and um, I noticed he had strength, he had quickness, and I took him to the local high, high school straight to the football coach. The football coach had him do some little minor drills, and he said, bring him to me tomorrow. Don't take him to the administration. Bring him to me. I took him to the coach. The coach got him in the school. The kid graduated, played at USC for four years, played on national championship teams, and then ended up playing for the Philadelphia Eagles. Wow.
0: Wow. Wow. What a story. Wow.
1: He was supposed to be put on drugs and put in the concentration school. Right. See, But we didn't do that. And the whole time he was in my program, he only got write-ups because when he would leave school, he would take longer than he should to get to the probation home. So I found out the reason that he was doing it, cause I was writing him up and everything, <laughs> but I found out the reason he was doing that is because he was walking a girl home after school. Oh. So at the end, when he graduated from the program, he saw that I'd never turned in not one of his write-ups and I gave them all to him. <laughs> and he realized, because how am I gonna write? I gotta do what I gotta do in case something goes wrong but how am I going to find fault with a kid that would do the exact same thing I would do as a kid? Right. So it's like, no, he never got wrote up for it. And he went on through the program and he had successful. And now the last thing I heard, he was doing some really nutritional stuff and things like that.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Fred, I'm going to ask you kind of a, mm, I don't know, kind of a bit of a controversial question. Did you, Did you notice whether or not that um, I'm supposed to call you Reverend Shaw. Sorry. My my husband is telling me,
1: make sure I call him Reverend Shaw. I'm not entitled, but go ahead.
0: I know. Did you notice that um, African-American children were targeted with psychiatric um, diagnoses and drugs versus white children?
1: There's two parts to that. Number one, all kids are targeted. African Americans are targeted at a greater degree. okay We're like 13% of the population, but we're anywhere depending on what section you into from 22 to 30 some percent of the people that get diagnosed with certain disabilities and things like that. And it's only because it's real interesting how the funding goes to mental health. But it doesn't go to programs that is effective and can change the lives of these young people. The state of California acknowledged that I ran greatest homes in all of California. However, they wouldn't give me an extra penny because I didn't use the psychiatric model. I used the social work model. So, you know, yeah, I think they are. I think statistics prove it. They're more likely to be put in... And uh, classes for those that need extra help and things like that, they're more likely to be diagnosed uh, with some type of thing. You know, you have an inherent or built-in racism that I don't even know if some of them even know is racist in nature. I think it comes from the field of mental health where they believe that Black people's skin is is tougher than other people's skin. and We can tolerate pain better, so we're more likely to get electric shock. We're more likely to be put on these drugs and stuff. In fact, one of the uh, people who did electric shock, I think back in the 50s or early 60s, said that you know African-Americans have basically a good uh, support system, so therefore uh, the people that get damaged by electric shock get better help from their families. So that was the you know, the basis of saying it was okay to do those type of treatments.
0: That's revolting. That's just, that's horrific and that's revolting. I, I, that, anyway, that's just awful. Reverend Shaw, did you find that, and I wonder, this may or may not have been something you would have asked, but the kids who were addicted or the young people who were addicted in the area, did you notice if there was any correlation between kids who had been labeled with mental disorders and started on psychiatric drugs? Did you notice any kind of correlation there in your area?
1: I noticed there was a difference in our in our group homes and stuff, because the kids that were on psychiatric drugs, uh, we rejected them. Or when they came to our home, we noticed a distinct difference in their behavior patterns and things like that. In fact, it was so obvious that at one time the state would send a psychiatrist to do their assessment. That was by law, there was nothing we could do about that. However, whenever the psychiatrist was left, we noticed that we had problems with the children. And it was like, wait a minute. So at one point I told the psychiatrist, do not do anything but the assessment. And if you can't follow that, I will stand in the door and make sure that you don't do anything but that assessment. Because what they did was we found that they were creating problems. So then when we had the psychologist come in, he admitted that he, w- he wouldn't let 72% of the psychiatrists and psychologists he knew work on anybody in his family. Huh. on top of that, check this out. I met with the top guy in children and family services for LA County. And I met with the top psychiatrist at the same time. I accused the psychiatrist of drugging the kids with less than seven minutes of evaluation and he could not deny it. And And when we walked out the door, the, the person over Children and Family Services said, how did you know that? I said, I didn't. It's faster than that by how quick he actually acknowledged it. And he admitted they didn't have time to uh, uh, analyze every kid. So they just would put them on drugs.
0: That's criminal.
1: Well, and even deeper than that, and, and like your topic about addiction, they know that when you use drugs like Ritalin, which is one of the most prescribed drugs uh, for children, along with uh, Adderall and stuff, they know these drugs cause addiction. So, and even when they don't, it sets you up. So then, when you older and you use meth or you use cocaine, because Adderall and 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 meth is basically the same drug, and Ritalin <laughs> and cocaine is basically the same drug. They have the same addiction properties and everything else. So what are we doing when we're supposed to be helping these kids?
0: Okay. So I'm just going to repeat what you said. So Ritalin is the same chemical composition as cocaine.
1: Basically. And
0: Adderall is the same chemical composition as methamphetamine. People, right. if you have children and they're recommending you put your children on these drugs, hello. Would you put your four year old or your five year old on cocaine? Would you give them methamphetamines? I think the answer to that is no. You need to do your homework.
1: Well, more often than not, unfortunately, people are not doing their homework. Right. And they are saying yes to it. Just like you got parents allowing their children to be electric shocked from zero to five years of age. So it's like, what are the parents doing? They're going along with the authority. They're doing what they're told. I mean, you know, if you think about it, most of us, we don't question our accountant when he tells us what to do, or if we're facing a situation and a lawyer tell us. We in America, we have been trained to basically believe authority, yeah. to do what we're told. It's only the people like me and you and others who say, well, how, how, how is that true? How does that work? What what what's behind this? How do they know this? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so you get this big divide in America between those who are aware and those who follow orders. And then you got conflict and things like that. But you know, I always question. I don't yeah. take the doctor's word on anything he tells me. He needs to convince me. Yeah. He needs to show me that this works.
0: And that and that's the point, parents. You you get Told by quote unquote authority, I don't care whether it's a teacher, I don't care whether it's a school resource officer, I don't care whether it's a therapist. You need to question about these drugs. You need to question about you know their chemical properties, are they addictive? And you know, they are. Ritalin is addictive, Adderall's addictive. I mean, we get we've had people on the podcast who were addicted to these drugs. You need to question it. You cannot just decide that a doctor knows better for your kids than you do. You know, it's scary. Well, if
1: you remember, and I don't know your age, and I'm, I'm not trying to ask, but when I was a kid, and I think you're around my age or so, uh, our parents, our mother was the nurse. Yep. She, if the doctor gave you a drug and you had an adverse reaction to it, she took you off that drug. It wasn't, you didn't have to go back and say, oh, he's having seizures. Oh, he's having a rash. Oh, she did it. Yep. See, but nowadays, you know, they tell you to consult your doctor. First of all, why are we even having commercials about drugs? Oh, yeah. Don't get me
0: started on
1: that one. We have death as part of the product. Yeah. Yep. I mean, why would you, and they say consult your doctor. On that, first yeah. of all, the doctor's supposed to be taking my blood work, looking at my symptoms, doing all these things, and he determines what drug is best for me. Right, Not me going in and say <laughs> like the children are doing across this nation, oh, doc, I can't, I can't focus, I can't clean my room, me and my parents are hard. I feel depressed, can I have rhythm? Can I have... Xanax. I mean, yeah, Xanax. Yeah. And then yep. the doctor gives it to him, because the doctor's connected to the pharmaceutical rep yes he is kickbacks him to be at the ice Capades. and the yep. and, I'm in Los Angeles the Laker games and, Yep, Bingo. you know what I'm
0: follow the money Come,
1: yep this that's the whole thing of this show is follow the money
0: exactly and, so so let me ask you a question Fred because what one of the things we like to do with the podcast is um oops I called you Fred again uh-huh. my husband keeps telling me to call you Reverend Shaw um, anyway, what can people contact CCHR if a if a parent is told by a school resource officer or a principal or a teacher if they're told, oh, you know, your child has this that or the other thing, can they contact CCHR and ask questions about yeah. that?
1: Yeah, I um, I would ask them to go to the CCHR website because before they call, a lot of their questions and things may be answered. We have campaigns that are uh, for children. We have a, a 3D museum uh, on there for our whole CCHR museum thing. And that is called psychiatry and industry of death. And okay. it, at the industry, it is not the death museum. It's an industry of death because of the amount of people who are killed and and, and, and messed up, you know, for example, People don't know when we're talking about Ritalin and Adderall and all of these types of drugs, uh, they have side effects of suicidal tendencies. Well, if it has a suicidal tendency, it has a homicidal tendency because a suicide is a homicide done to yourself. So then it also has the properties of dropping dead. What could be wrong with a child that we would give them the death penalty? Right. I mean, so when we look at these things and and so I would say just go uh, look on the the, um, CCHR website. You can hit contact us and then, you know, get the phone number. For example, uh, if anybody wants the phone number right now, you can uh, contact us at 323-467-4242 and you can um you know tell them what your problem is they will refer you to the appropriate uh, department for that uh, you can and, then, also- and just so
0: they know it's cchr.org cchr.org C-C-R- and i'm going to
1: cchrint.org C-C-H-R-int. cchrint
0: okay cchrint.org and the number again is 323 467 4242. And uh, just one other editorial comment. I've said this so many times that when you take, um, drugs, whether it's street drugs or prescription drugs, you are playing Russian roulette. And in the same way that you just said, Reverend Shaw, that would you want to give your kids a death penalty? Would you let them play Russian roulette with a gun? Would you let them do that? And if the answer to that is no, then why would you put them on drugs like Ritalin and Adderall when you do not know the long-term effect of these drugs and you do not know how they are going to affect your child? And do you really want to take that risk? I would think most parents would say no. And
1: and that, and what you just said is appropriate, but we have such a fast paced society. Everything is quick fix. And so, Therefore, I don't take responsibility or see what's going on. When they told me that they wanted to help my son with his self-esteem, I realized that's not their job. That's right. I'm responsible as his father to do that. So I have to take a responsibility for my child and make sure he got what he needed from home. Strangers and people that don't know him are not supposed to provide that. Yep. I'm supposed to guide his past that pet pa- his past. That's why I'm a parent. Yes. You know what I'm mean? saying? But so even though the doctor says, I'm supposed to say, because my kid will never say, what are the side effects of these drugs? Yes. Oh, all drugs have side effects. I didn't ask you that. Yes. I said, what is the side effects of these drugs? You know, because that's what they do. All drugs, that that's you'll hear people on these drugs. All drugs have side effects. Well, maybe we should do something about that. Yep. That's not something to accept. We got artificial intelligence. We got all types of medicine and stuff. We don't have to have all of these drugs with these bad side effects. That's right. So, I mean, you know, I get passionate about this. You, you know, do I'm get so-
0: passionate, and that's okay, Reverend Shaw, because I'm passionate about it because these are our kids. These are our future. The future. And future. And if we don't if we don't take care of them and we don't keep them off prescription drugs, I mean, there's no guarantee that your child isn't gonna go try a Xanax at a party and you can't be with them 24 seven to ensure that they don't do that. But you can question prescription drugs that are recommended for your kids. You can question that and you have to do that. You just have to because that's, it's your child, and it's it's our future. You know, um, Reverend Shaw, I appreciate you very much. I know that you have been an activist for a long time, and excuse me for saying it this way: you kick butt, you take names, and we need about a million more of you doing what you do.
1: Well, as long as people like yourself allow me to come on shows and reach people that I normally would not be able to reach. And I'm not afraid to come on your show. I do this on every show. I never get a taker, but I do this on every show. If a psychiatrist or somebody wants to debate me on your show, you can get me at any time. Because uh, I have debated people from Morehouse University to UC Irvine to Harvard professors, and I have never been defeated. So in fact, it was so bad on one cast, I said to him, how is it that I can debate you on mental health and that's your field and you can't debate me on the Bible, which is my field. So <laughs> I, it's like, you know, but I can do that because my information is true and I know they're making it up as they go along. Yep. And so you do not have any science. The Diagnostic Statistical Manual has no statistics in it.
0: Nope.
1: It is a book. <laughs> that have billing codes. And so they believe in the chemical imbalance of the brain, which has been debunked from the College University of London, where they took 17 major studies and found no evidence of a chemical imbalance of the brain. So if the chemical imbalance of the brain is fraudulent and the Diagnostic Statistical Manual have no statistics, What are they putting this whole thing based on? That would be opinion. There you go. And it's based on money. Yep, money
0: and opinion. Because if I I can say that you have some sort of mental disorder, I can then prescribe drugs. I can get kickbacks from the pharmaceutical companies. I can get rich.
1: And pay for my visit. And see, it's interesting because if I can get a patient in every 15 minutes, and I can charge them $300 a visit, I'm making $1,200 an hour. Yep, That's a lot of money. Yep. That's why you see the medical profession taking on the personality of the psychiatrist, because the psychiatrists generally aren't as smart as the medical profession, but they're making more money yep. based on recommended people coming in. Yep. So it's like, we, we just have to ask people, say, you know what, We have to be alert. We have to research for ourselves. We have to make sure that the educational standards in any field fits that, that it's supposed to be. And and in doing that, we will find ourselves uncovering a lot of truths that we would have never known. And we have to be able to do that.
0: Yep, I agree. Reverend Shaw, thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for everything that you do. I I appreciate you and I appreciate you talking to us today. I know you're busy cuz you got a lot going out out there in LA and I just I really appreciate everything you do.
1: Well, let me just tell you this. Anytime you want me to come on the show, you just let me know.
0: I will definitely do that because I think people need to know what the truth is about the drugging of our kids, and they need to become educated about it, and that's the whole purpose.
1: Well, and and let me just say this real quick. Um, like we we criticize law enforcement. I've been law enforcement, so I've been on both sides. I grew up in the inner city. I've been in law enforcement. We criticize them, but we don't realize that a lot of them get their viewpoints from the mental health profession. Yeah, and so you know. A lot of the things we see with education and all of those type of things, it's mental health behind that. So we have to address the problem, not the symptom.
0: Right. That's right. Exactly. You're awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Shaw. Thank you for listening. Definitely a hard hitting interview. You know, um, we touch all the time on illegal drugs and people who've been addicted to illegal drugs and we talk some about prescription drugs, but you know, probably the part of our society that is the most, um, what's the word? They, they are going to get hit with this stuff more than anybody is the children. And that's our job. We have to prevent them being diagnosed with any sort of, um, mental disorder or what have you. Um, Reverend Shaw talked about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's called the DSM and it's what psychiatrists use to label people. There's a math disorder if you don't like math. I don't know. I probably have that one. I think there's a shopping disorder, but I'm not sure. And I know I have that one. Anyway, it's not based on statistics. It's really based on opinion don't put your kid on these drugs. Don't set them up for a lifetime of drug dependency and then wonder why in their teenage years they're addicted to heroin. Um, yeah, there's a correlation there. Anyway, thank you for listening. We've got another interview next week and we will be back. You have been listening to the addiction podcast, point of no return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.